Hello and welcome to OpWall's Field Notes, a podcast created by Operation Wallacea to share stories and insights from our 25 years working in the field. My name is Sophia Wood, OpWall's Country Manager for Ecuador and Director of Friends of Wallacea, and I will be your host for this series. We launched this podcast to shine a light on the world of biodiversity field research and the work of those who dedicate their lives to understanding and protecting our planet. Each month, we have conversations with scientists, community conservationists, and experienced academics about new research, protecting biodiversity, and daily life out in the field. Today is a special episode where I'll be interviewing Mo Johnson, who has run Opwall's sales offices out of Southeast Asia, Australia, and China since 2013, as well as running our marine research site on South Bhutan Island in Indonesia. We invited Mo on the podcast today because she lives full-time in Sulawesi, Indonesia, where Opal has been running a reforestation project since the start of the pandemic to support local families who have lost all their tourism income for the year. In this episode, Mo will provide an update on our tree planting progress, what the current situation is on the ground in Indonesia, and how anyone can help the conservation cause from home making tiny changes in their daily lives. Hi, Mo. Thanks so much for joining us today. I know it's morning where you are and it's evening where I am. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me on here. I'm, I'm looking forward to chatting with you today. So since we're taping everything from home, where are you based right now? So I'm based in Baobao, which is a town on Bhutan Island in Southeast Sulawesi, Indonesia, and this is where I live. Okay, so I can hear by your accent, you weren't necessarily born in Indonesia. So what made you choose to live there? Yeah, no, so I'm from the UK originally. Um, I do call Indonesia home now though. And um, basically I fell in love with Indonesia on my first Opal expedition when I was 20 years old. It took me by surprise. I, I was expecting the expedition to be really stimulating from a science point of view. I was really excited to meet all the scientists in the field and that happened, um, but I got more than I expected. So um, I also really, really fell in love with the culture and the people were so warm and I just became so interested in this country and just kept coming back. <laughs> and uh, I did return to the UK, finish my degree and I just kept coming back and forth for quite a few years and then decided to settle here in 2009. Um, I also met Imin, my husband, who's from here. So that helped with the decision, of course. <laughs> Yes, that makes sense. And it's a long commute from the UK to Indonesia. So I can see why if you loved it, you just got to stay. Could you tell us a little bit more then about, you know, the work that you've been doing at Opwal um, and, and what you do with us in Indonesia? Yeah, so um, there's quite a long answer to that question, I guess, because I have a few different roles in Opwal. Um, during the field season, I work in project management, which is like um, a lot of scheduling, health and safety, budgeting, that kind of thing. And Imna and I run one of the marine research sites out here. So it's not so science focused during the season, although having a science background is important because, yeah, because a lot of the work does involve working with the scientists and make sure we're meeting their goals as well during the field. So. The field is very project management based, but out of the optical season, I'm very office based and do a lot of work on promoting and recruiting um, students for optical expeditions and not just expeditions to Indonesia, but recruiting people to join our expeditions all over the world. 
So I have an office at home. I often have a couple of people here working with me and we cover the areas of Southeast Asia, China and Hong Kong and Australia. So quite a large area. And um, as I said, it's mainly office based, but there is some time spent on the road, getting out, meeting teachers, giving talks to students and parents and things. And, um, but yeah, since the pandemic started, my role has actually become more science-based, um, which is quite refreshing in some ways. I'm, I'm involved in a reforestation project here on Bhutan Island and also doing some survey work for mangrove restoration projects. So um, yeah, that, that's in a nutshell, the various roles that I do. What inspired you to first become a scientist? Well, um, I've always been an outdoors person. Uh, as a child, I grew up on a small holding in Wales with lots of animals and pets. And my hobbies were bird watching and horse riding and always rescuing injured animals and birds and bringing them home and um, that side of things. And in school, my favorite subjects were science. Um, in the UK, you have to really kind of select your subjects quite early on. And I was like a biology, chemistry, physics person. Those were my, my thing. Um, so when I went going to university, environmental science really seemed like the right fit for me because it combined science and it combined environment and the outdoors. And yeah, I loved every minute of it. And that was what brought me to Indonesia with Opwal the first time. And it's opened up so many opportunities for me to travel the world, to see the world and the great outdoors. That's fantastic. Well, so you talked a little bit you know, when you were talking about your role with Opwal, you talked a little bit how it's shifted during the pandemic to go towards more science, which is sounds like a, possibly a good shift. Could you tell us a little bit more about what has happened to conservation and tourism projects over the past year in Indonesia in general uh, during the pandemic and, and what communities are doing today to adapt to this new situation where there's no tourism? Yeah, so as you say, there's no tourism, the borders are closed, uh, so there's definitely no international tourism going on for at least the last year, um, and that's having a huge impact, I mean, on income, particularly for many communities, many people are struggling. Maybe in this area it's having less of an effect on things like socialising and large gatherings and weddings, a lot of people are just carrying on with life as normal in that regard, which is a little concerning, but from an income point of view, um, people are struggling, particularly in the villages where Opwal works. I mean, there's already starting to be a rise in domestic tourism in Indonesia because um, there's quite a large middle class in Indonesia in the cities and they can't travel internationally and they're starting to travel in country, but they're not really interested. But the most of them are not really interested in the areas where, where Opwal's working in these small villages. Um, so options are limited. In terms of adaptations in the town where I live and in other towns and cities, we've seen a huge growth in online businesses like selling things and home delivery services and loads of people are growing hydroponic vegetables in their garden, you know, salad and all that kind of stuff. So that's the kind of adaptations that are interesting to see in the towns, but out in the villages, there's much less opportunity for these kind of adaptations. So looking at what people are doing in the villages, most people have just turned back to farming or fishing activities but many people don't have land and if they don't have land or any capital to start up their agricultural business say growing tomatoes and buying seeds or something like that then these people are really really struggling and you know they're just collecting food 
to eat from from their surroundings and really struggling financially. Also heard stories of some people being pushed into illegal logging activities, illegal hunting activities, again, just because they're so desperate to earn some cash, which is sad to hear. Um, and at Opwell, we're currently helping one village, uh, the village of Lobunda Bundo, which is um, the village where the whole Opwell idea started in Indonesia over 20 years ago. And at the present, we're helping them with a reforestation project. And it really is a lifeline for many, many people in that village. Um, because obviously the Opal Conservation Expedition stopped, but it's fantastic that Opal can still be here with a different kind of project, the conservation of planting out trees. So that's, that's good for the village here. But there are other villagers who haven't got that help yet and could do with that kind of opportunity becoming available for them. Absolutely. Well, obviously, you know, it's a heartbreaking and incredibly complex situation that's happening worldwide mm. with the pandemic and and in you know in countries that were you know in communities unfortunately that were already vulnerable have only been made more so almost everywhere in the world but obviously you know there's this small bright spot of having been able to support the communities through the reforestation project that we're working on so could you talk a little bit more about this reforestation project um you know what's the idea behind it and then maybe paint us a picture of What's happening today? What's the planting like? And who are these people involved? Yeah, sure. I'd, I'd love to. Um, so this project started quite early on in the pandemic. Um, I think it was an idea that Dr. Tim Coles had, our project director in Opwell. And it started off with developing tree nurseries in three villages across Bhutan Island. Um, the three villages that Opwell has been working with over the years to run these expedi expeditions that we run. So we have a good relationship with them and um, Opal got some funding into them to collect saplings and tent and seeds and then tend to them in village nurseries. Um, and each nursery has 10,000 saplings. So um, this happened quite a few months ago, like I say, early in the pandemic, it's been a lifeline for many people working on that. And we're now at the planting out stage. It's rainy season here right now, um, which is fantastic for the saplings because if they're planted out now, they're getting well watered, which is important um, for their survival. It does make the work really tough though um, for those on the ground going out planting because the mud, oh, you just can't imagine the mud is so thick. They're up to their knees in it every day and they're trekking long distances. Um, the area we're focusing on planting at the moment is deep in the Lambosango Reserve. Um, and it's in the forest, but it's areas that have been illegally logged in the past where there's large clearings of damaged forests. So replanting the saplings in those areas. Um, this involves people trekking into the forest five to 10 kilometers um, to get in. And then they have to come out again, of course, through a lot of mud up steep, steep hills, down, down steep valleys. Um, any of our past volunteers who've been out to the Lapago camp We'll remember what that's like in the dry season when Opal's there, but um, at this season, it's even tougher. So, yeah, like I say, the team at the moment that we're working with is from Labundo village. It's headed up by Darwis, who's the eldest son of Pakmantan that any past volunteers might remember. Um, they're quite an influential family in the village, and um, they've recruited a, a team from the village of 10, 15 to 20 men at the moment working on it. And... Um, these guys working on the project are mainly people who don't have their own land and therefore really don't have any other means of making an income. So they're actually really, really happy to be working on this project. 
Um, I've seen um, their wives being very thankful. It's giving them some income. Um, it's like it's affecting their whole extended families and really, really helping the whole village. The problem we're facing now, I guess, is we're running out of funds because uh, we collect Poppers collecting funds and we've planted out about 4,000 saplings, but there's still 26,000 left to go, 6,000 left in the window and another two villages waiting to plant out their saplings as well. So we're really hoping to get more people on board, supporting this, donating this, sharing, sharing information about this, just so that we can um, get all these trees planted before the rainy season ends. We've got a couple of months left to go. So every dollar counts right now. Absolutely. And I'll just shout out from our end, of course, that um, it costs about $5 through the Wallacea Trust, wallaceatrust.org to uh, plant a tree and, and sponsor one of these families, basically, that's supporting the tree planting project and digging their way through the mud every day to go out and plant the trees. So anyone who is interested, of course, can support and uh, offset their own carbon emissions and obviously support biodiversity because they're, they're native species. So what, you know, based on what you've talked about, you've painted a beautiful picture of, of, of the challenge of planting these trees and what's really happening on the ground. What do you want our listeners to understand or take away uh, from, you know, understand about our reforestation project in Sulawesi? Well, about this particular project, I mean, reforestation globally as a whole is such an important issue. And I think um, anybody who's listening to this podcast probably already knows that. Um, what I'd like them to know about this project is it's a, it is a great project. It is making a difference to the communities here and we're all putting our hearts into it. Opwell has been working in this part of the world for over 20 years and intends to be running annual expeditions here again as soon as the global travel situation allows. So we're going to be monitoring these trees and replacing any saplings that don't make it. And um, so, you know, it, it's, a, it's a really good project. And... I guess the main take home message is it's worthwhile for the local people, but also for the global environment that we all share. So every little bit helps. And um, I'll be happy to give updates over time about what's going on and send pictures and videos. And anyone who wants to get involved, they can rest assured that they're contributing to a really good cause. And I'm happy oh. to be part of this. So that's very unique. I guess the point you just said, which I'm not sure everybody knows, obviously, you know, when you donate to a reforestation project online, which you could Google and find a million of, you don't necessarily know where your trees were planted or that they were even planted or who was involved. So if I plant a tree with this project, could you, you know, be, would I then be able to see a picture of you said, these are your three trees. Thanks, Sophia, for your, for your donation. Yeah, so I mean, we're not exactly labeling trees by people's donations, but we are taking pictures of loads of the trees being planted. We are mapping out where the trees are being planted. I was so encouraged to see um, photos from the team on the ground. They've worked with Opal for so many years and they know how to um, set up a quadrat on a hundred meter by hundred meter scale in the forest, you know. They're, they're taking ropes and tapes, they're measuring out, they're, they're planting off the transects that Opwell has used in, in the past and will be using again. So we know exactly where these trees are planted and we're going to be monitoring them and we can show you where and any volunteers, future volunteers coming out into the field will get to go out and see, see what 
where we've planted and um, like I say we'll be updating you all the time and and you made a really valid point I think that there's so many projects out there it can become a bit overwhelming knowing where to where to send your money what projects to support um, but in my own personal experience I, I generally support the organizations that I know and trust and then it's those ones over and over again because I know that they're doing the real the real work you know so um, hopefully we've got a lot of Exotical people who know what we're doing and will be keen to get on board with this. Absolutely. I think that's a great point about looking for organizations that you can trust with this kind of work. Um, you know, to round out our, our conversation about the, the Sulawesi project, do you have any anecdotes or stories that you'd like to share from the first few weeks of planting? Yeah, there's so many stories. <laughs> I mean, Pak Darwis, he he comes to meet with me every week and he's always full of stories we sit down and talk it all through i really am not sure where to start but one funny funny story um there's a endemic uh but small buffalo from this area called the anoa and uh, they've got a bit of a reputation for being aggressive in these areas it's very rare to see them mostly we just see tracks um but the this team got really lucky to see one coming down to the river to have a drink um, about three or four days into the planting and uh, Darius was telling me they they all screeched like babies and ran and climbed trees because they were terrified that the Anoa was going to come and attack them and these are very small looking it looks like a really small cow and they can be aggressive but I think um, like any wild animal faced with a group of 15 people they're going to turn away and run away from you rather than the opposite but that was quite a funny story to hear um, of the team in the field Another more sad one um, was that they came across a snare that had been set for catching a NOAA in the protected reserve area, um, which was sad, but I'm pleased to report that um, they removed the snare, they cut it and they took the remnants back home with them so that it couldn't be reset, um, which was really reassuring to know because, you know, they've been working with Opal for a long time and they, they do understand why illegal hunting is, is so bad. Um, so I'm glad that they did that. Other things they've told me, they've found evidence of recent illegal logging in one area of the reserve, which was worrying to hear, but they got one of the local um, reserve rangers in to show him. And uh, it's quite funny because the reserve rangers, you know, they wear their nice uniforms and they have their officers and they go into the forest sometimes um, with local guides, but they got one of the rangers into the forest with them. They made him get his hands dirty and help with planting trees for the day. And then like one of the cheeky, cheeky guys on the team told him that, you know, we're doing your job for you. We're replanting the reserve and we're spotting the illegal logging. So I think you should buy us some um, a bottle of Arak, which is the local homebrew type of alcohol here to say thank you. And, and the ranger did actually oblige. And he also thanked them for the work they're doing and said that from their point of view, they think there's been less um, illegal entry into the forest since this planting has been going on because people are nervous to go in. And during the opal season, when we've got expeditions running there, nobody goes into that forest because they know they're not allowed to and they know they've got a good chance of getting caught. Um, but maybe people were getting more brave to go in and exploit the forest since opal's not been there. But with this tree planting project, there's been less of that recently. So that was really encouraging to hear. That's great to hear. Yeah, it is. It is, isn't it? And I've heard lots of other stories, like I say, of you know, snake <laughs> encounters and somebody got lost in a wind and rainstorm. And now the team think it was down to forest spirits luring him away because they couldn't possibly imagine how he could get lost. But they found him, thankfully. So, yeah, good. Lots of, 
stories every Sounds week. Sounds like it's been an adventure. <laughs> no, I mean, I can't, I can't, <laughs> I can't tell them all, but it is interesting to hear. And these these stories will probably be told for years on in the village. I can imagine. Well, yeah. to go back a little bit to your story, obviously you've really dedicated your life to conservation and working with Apple, moving all the way out to Indonesia. Do you have any tips or suggestions for people who care about conservation, want to support it, but maybe aren't ready to go all the way to move to Indonesia to dedicate their lives to it? And really, you know, from your perspective, how can people give back in their day-to-day lives and, and live more sustainably? Yeah, I mean, it's a big it's a big question, but there are just so many things people can do if they want to and if they're interested. I mean, you can go online and you can find lists of ways to reduce your carbon footprint or how to live a plastic-free life or, you know, how you can contribute to local conservation projects where you live or you can join international conservation projects like Opal projects and expeditions or, you know, you can donate to reforestation projects like this. Um, I recently made my own list, actually. It was a bit of a, like, a New Year's resolution, but not at New Year. It was a quite a few months ago in the early in the pandemic and my own list like had things like you know how am I going to live more sustainably and I just to brainstorm and think what I could be doing differently in my own life and it had things on it you know like use bamboo toothbrushes instead of plastic toothbrushes and get rid of cling film or plastic wrap from the kitchen and use silicone covers or switch to shampoo soap bars instead of shampoo bot plastic that comes in plastic bottles but I also had big things on my list you know like committing myself to offsetting my own carbon footprint every time I take a flight and making that my norm, not just an exception of, oh, I'll do it this time, but making that something that sticks in my head that I have to do every time I fly. Or I also have on my list converting my house to um, electricity supply to solar panels on the roof. And that's a much more bigger, more expensive project, but it's, it's on the list to try to get myself living more sustainably. And, you know, people can do all kinds of things and, I guess my main tip is that um, every single choice we make has an impact, large choices, small choices, whatever, it all matters and it all adds up. So yeah, make good choices wherever you can. And and the more you do it, the easier it gets. And um, we could all do more, but we've all got to keep keep trying. I think it feels like a minefield sometimes, right? Like, oh, it's just so huge. How are we going to turn this around? But it's only going to be by a huge effort from everyone doing what they can getting better each day that's going to make absolutely I think that's that's a huge and great point that you make that you know there's thousands of things that you can pick from and if everyone went to those thousands and picked three that for them they can do it would already make a huge difference so that that's great advice well like I said the more you do the easier it gets you pick three and you do those three and they become your norm and you don't even look back and you think why didn't I do this earlier another three and another three and you just keep going and some will be big choices and some will be small choices, but it does get easier over time. Yes, that's fantastic. So Indonesia is obviously, you know, there's a reason we picked it as the first Opal site, the reason it inspired Alfred Russell Wallace and, and Opal to do research here. And it's because it's full of so many unique species that are endemic and can't be seen anywhere else on earth. What is the craziest or coolest thing that you've seen in the field? That's such a difficult question. I mean, I mean, yeah, so much I've seen, I guess. And living here, all those crazy, cool, endemic things that you see, they kind of become the norm. 
And um, I really love having visitors and the Opal expeditions because the fresh set of eyes of visitors or the Opal volunteers and the wonder when they see these things really brings it back to me how how unique this place is. And um, I love that. I guess on the forest side of things, for me, the coolest thing is still just sleeping in a hammock in the jungle and waking up to that sound and of the jungle and it's special. I haven't done it for ages because I have small kids. Um, as a camping, as a family, we do go camping a lot, but we mainly stick to the beach areas. My husband, I mean, he's a diving instructor and during the opal seasons, we run one of the marine sites. So we're a lot more beach focused most of the time, but I do think it'll be time to initiate my kids to what it's like to sleep in a hammock in the jungle again soon. And I'm looking forward to doing that again. The diving here is so cool. I mean, the, the reefs, the, the sharks, the reef sharks, all the different amazing, unique critters you get. Um, I love the diving as well. In terms of, um, so there's a lot of cool stuff here, but in terms of the crazy animal encounter, maybe, um, there was one that sticks in my mind that was quite funny. Um, one day, Imin and I were going to Labundo Bundo on a motorbike and it was a red motorbike. And uh, we stopped in a forested area, not too far from the village, just to stretch our legs and, and yeah listen to the forest I like the sounds of the forest and um, we just walked a couple of meters away from the bike and two uh, couscous which are an endemic animal here um, they came running down a tree and they ran up the road and they stopped right in front of our bike and they just started patting the red bit on the front of the motorbike and smelling it and and they were so interested and it was so unusual because these animals usually stay up in the trees and they move extremely slowly and um, they don't have very good eyesight. So it was just a really weird and crazy situation. We were stood two meters away, holding our breath, not daring to move. Um, and our, it was the time before smartphones were a thing, I guess. And our camera was in the day sack that was on the front of the bike, right where they were. And we were just like, I want my camera right now. Um, but it was a very cool, cool encounter, one I'll never forget. And they just lost interest in the bike after a couple of minutes and wandered back off and went up a tree. But Every other time I've seen them, they're just sitting still in the tree, looking at you and not moving very much. But it was quite, pretty cool. It always seems that those uh, crazy wildlife stories happen to us while we don't have a camera, right? Pretty much always. <laughs> it's typical, isn't it? But it always happens like that. What's a, what's a yeah. couscous like? Yeah, it's a marsupial. So it carries its babies in its pouch. It's quite small. There's a couple of different types and there's a bear couscous, which is really small, but it looks a bit like a sloth in the tree kind of thing. But um, it's endemic here. It's, it's Very cool. Yes, that must have been amazing. Um, yeah. Well, well, to end us out on a positive note, this has been a wonderful conversation with you to hear more about what the situation is on the ground in Indonesia. I wanted to ask you why you personally believe we should keep fighting to protect biodiversity and prevent climate change and really what gets you out of bed in the morning? Well, again, a huge question without a short answer, but I really think that protecting biodiversity and trying to prevent climate change is our duty and it's a challenge we should all be willing to take on. I mean, for our, the sake of ourselves, our children, the animals that we're driving to the brink of extinction and the planet, right? And um, I don't want to sound cliche, but if not us, then who else is going to do it? And um, there are so many amazing scientists working on this. And 
it's just really clear the evidence is there that as a human race we need to do more than what we're doing and we need to do it faster than what we're doing it so it's a huge job and I just say anyone with an inkling of understanding or interest in this really needs to just get on board and join this cause as soon as they can in whatever way they can start small and and do what you can as we said before, we can all find ways to contribute. And that's what gets me out of bed in the morning, I guess. Um, I often am hard on myself. I feel like I'm not doing enough. And then I remind myself that, yeah, every choice matters, every bit helps. And um, we can just keep working at it every day. At the moment, I'm really excited about this reforestation project. I'm also really excited about the new mangrove projects that we're working on at Opwell. And these are the two things getting me moving at the moment. Um, so yeah, some days we can contribute in small ways, some days in bigger ways, but but it is important and uh, it's exciting. The possibilities are exciting. They really are. And that's a great way to end us out. Your point about not feeling like you're doing enough can sometimes be, I think it's probably the, um, you know, the negative self-talk that every biologist or every conservationist hears sometimes, even if you're already throwing yourself fully into the field and doing everything you possibly can. And it's a great point that you bring up about just every choice matters. It's better to make that one tiny thing than to do nothing. And that's how it starts, right? I think some people can fall in that trap of apathy. Like it's so overwhelming. There's just so much that needs to be done and we can't possibly do it in time. And so what are we going to do? But that can be really debilitating. And um, to keep a positive spin on things, you've just got to really look at what you can do and do what you can do. And, and like we go back, every choice matters and every bit helps. And once you start doing it, it feels really empowering. So maybe, yes, that, yeah. first, maybe that first step is, is helping reforest Sulawesi. Yes. <laughs> So Nate, anybody listening who's interested, this this project will really, really help the local people here who are struggling in this pandemic. It's going to help the global environment as well. I can vouch for it being a great project and I just hope more people will join us in this. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for taking the time this morning, this evening. Mo, it was great to talk to you and uh, we will hopefully have more people participating in this project soon and hear more updates from you soon about how the tree planting is going. Yeah, thanks so much as well, Sophia, for inviting me on here. And it's been really nice chatting with you. Thank you for tuning in to Opwalt's Field Notes. We hope you were inspired by Mo's commitment to helping Indonesia's people and wildlife and learn some new ways you can help protect our planet too. A special thanks to our podcast producer, Mike Judson, and editor, Beth Newark, who made this and every episode possible. We're a new podcast, so please make sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts, and share with a friend who cares about conservation, too. It's a huge help to us so more people can learn about the podcast, plus you can stay up to date on new episodes about conservation and biodiversity hotspots around the world, coming soon on Opwell's Field Notes.